Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. You know, uh, they predict that the weather's going to get colder as uh, the day goes on, so I thought we should really worship while it's still warm outside and uh, not wait until it gets colder. If all those uh, Patriots fans up there in Boston would just confess that they cheated, you know, I think this weather pattern would probably be broken. You know, uh, we've been looking in God's Word, and we see that it's been God's intention to bless the people that he created from the very beginning. We saw it in Genesis chapter 1, and, um, you know, the life that God wants to bless us with, Jesus calls abundant, right? It's a life that's got extra. It's it's a life full of surplus uh, when we uh, understand the way that God intends for us to live. And so started way back at, at creation. And even when people resisted God's blessing, even when people didn't want it and even rebelled against it, God made some promises uh, about the future and how he intended to continue to bless uh, the people that he made. And especially his promise to Abraham becomes kind of the basic Uh, promise that we can trace all the way through the scriptures to the book of Revelation to the end of human history. It's God's intention to bless your life. It comes all the way down to us today. And uh, I think it makes a world of difference if we can dare to believe God uh, that his intent is to bless all the families of the earth, a promise that comes all the way down to us. And so I've been suggesting along the way as we've been doing this study Uh, that things like anxiety or depression, you know, uh, things like um, uh, indecision or fear or pride, uh, all of these things are like directly affected by whether or not we can take God at his word and believe that he is actually working to bless our lives in spite of how it feels, in spite of how it looks sometimes. Uh, God is at work fulfilling uh, the promise that he made. And so I know there are lots of different reasons for these things. It's not quite that simple. But what I would say is that our faith really makes a huge difference in um, these areas of our life. And it's because we all have needs, right? We all have some basic kinds of needs. And um, the Bible tells us that in order to meet these needs that we have... uh, All people either look to the creation to try to meet those needs or to the creator. And it's our choice. And if you spend your lifetime trying to meet some of the basic needs that we all have, uh, trying to meet them through the creation, we end up kind of frustrated, anxious, discouraged, you know, despondent even, uh, and so on. But if we look to the creator and we take him at his word and we trust his promise, we put faith in his promise, uh, it makes a world of difference. And so uh, we have a need, I think, for things like self-worth. We have a need to feel like, you know, um, that we're worth something, right? That uh, we're significant. And uh, when you realize uh, what God has gone through to bless us and to ensure that we receive his blessing, uh, well, you realize that you're of great value to God. And uh, there, that has an effect on things like you know, anxiety and uh, on depression and fear about the future and, and so on, you know. Uh, when we understand what value we are to God, a huge need in our life is met. Uh, God cares for us. God really does love us. Uh, I think we have a need for a sense of security or a sense of feeling that things are under control. Um, when we especially look to the future, I think uh, 
Uh, I was talking to uh, Dwayne Kellogg, and he was saying, kind of made a general statement, which I think is probably true. He said, you know, people that tend to focus on the future tend to have anxiety, and people that focus on their past uh, tend to have depression, right? And uh, we just sang this morning a couple of these songs. I was thinking how relevant our faith really is to these kinds of things. Uh, we just sang about the difference that God makes in these areas in our life when we uh, really do trust him. And so this whole thing about uh, control or the sense of security, people often uh, you know, become controlling themselves uh, in an effort to have a sense of this kind of control. But uh, pretty quick you learn that there's an awful lot in life you can't control. But God can control everything. And so when we trust him and when we put our trust in him that he is in control, that he is sovereign, he is powerful, he is working a plan, he will see his plan through the end in our life as well, uh, only God can control everything. And it's precisely this lack of faith or trust in God's promises uh, that give rise to our attempts to try to control things that we just can't control. Uh, you remember uh, Jeremiah, I think God says kind of plainly, and he says, you know, uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, right? And let not the um, mighty man boast in his might or the powerful man boast in his power. And let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, God says. You want to boast about it. You want to find an identity. You want to create a place for yourself to really live in, a, you know, in the blessing of God. Brag about this. I know and understand the God of the universe. Uh, I know what he's up to. I've read his word. I listen to what he says, and uh, I understand, you know. I think we have a need for approval or belonging instead of being rejected. And uh, oftentimes I think people's performance in life or appearance or portfolio is an attempt to try to meet this need for approval. But what if part of God's blessing in your life was his acceptance and approval of you through what he's accomplished in Christ? And so that you have this, you live with this, sense of acceptance and a, approval that's given to you by God through his blessing. Uh, what if you knew that you could not disappoint God? What if you really knew that you could not disappoint God? You can disobey God. You can rebel against him. You can resist him. You can sin against him. And there will be consequences that are designed to discipline us and to cause us to repent and to turn around. But God's love is such that you cannot disappoint his blessing. If God could be disappointed, it would mean that his love's conditional. And God says, no, I'm first going to love you, and then I'm going to look for you to respond. You remember, we talked about this, how God first led the people out of captivity in Egypt, and how he first saves us, and how he first sacrifices his son, and how he first pays the price to set us free from the slavery. And then he comes to us with the Ten Commandments. And then he comes to us with a way to respond to his blessing a way to stop being uh, people who are slaves and people who are uh, becoming the people of God and uh, shares with us how to make that happen and so forth. I think we have a need to feel secure about our future. Uh, the blessing of God contains uh, promises that are eternal. Eternal. That's a, it makes such a difference if you have confidence of what's going to happen to you on the other side of this life. And if part of the promise of God has to do with, uh, you know, the fact that we are made like him in his image and we are going to uh, go on forever and part of the blessing of God is to be secure about what happens to us after we die based on the resurrection of, of Jesus and so forth. And so this abundant life comes to us by faith, by faith in the promises 
uh, that God makes to us. And that's how it happened in Abraham's life, as we've seen. And that's how it still happens today. When we take God at his word and we trust him and we act on it, we believe him, um, then, you know, God, I think, um, begins to bless our lives. And it allows him to put his blessing into our life. And I think God is very careful in the Bible to show us, um, and through history, his protection of his promise. Uh, as we go through uh, the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, uh, we see that this promise that came from God went to Abraham, and from Abraham it went to his son Isaac, and from Isaac it went to Jacob, and Jacob was renamed Israel, and out of that came the whole nation, and God's promise went to the nation of Israel, and out of that this promise goes uh, forward uh, today, and I want to take us to the next step. I'm kind of excited to show you this. Uh, you know, um, we saw that in the forming of a nation for himself, God first blesses the people and then, you know, comes forward with the Ten Commandments and then talks about how people could respond and how first they're delivered from their slavery and then they're invited to uh, become, in fact, the very people of God. It's, it's accomplished entirely by God, it's a gift, our salvation. Um, it's a gift that comes to us in Christ. It's miraculous. It's unprecedented. People talk about it. Uh, people all the way through the New Testament are still talking about the exodus that happened in Israel's history and how God shaped for himself and formed for himself a people. And it's just like our salvation uh, and, and so on. And so uh, when you get um, uh, to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the end of the uh, first five books of the Bible, and um, you come to Deuteronomy, and God begins to talk about a future uh, for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And um, here's what uh, God says. He's looking to the future. I think this has not yet happened yet to the nation of Israel. He's talking to them. And uh, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Uh, verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes and so forth. Uh, verse 17. But... If your heart turns away and uh, you will not hear, you will not listen, but are drawn away to worship other small g gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter in and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death blessing and curse therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the lord your god obeying his voice holding fast to him for he is your life he is your life now the blessing of god is wrapped up in the person of god and god is giving us himself and uh here in um deuteronomy god is saying there is a day coming when the Jewish nation is going to love him with all their heart. I don't think that day has happened yet. I think Israel, as it is today, is a pretty much a secular nation. Started out as a theocracy, meaning God was their king. And uh, today, you know, they're back in the land, and I think that's a result of some of the promises of God. But I'm not so sure that people connect that to 
um, the spiritual side of what God is up to and someday restoring them, as Paul says in uh, the New Testament, Romans 9 through 11, about the future that uh, there is for Israel. And so um, from Deuteronomy, you know, that's the end, and then Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. But from Deuteronomy all the way through to 2 Kings is, is what's called the hi- historical books of the Old Testament. And uh, in these historical books, it's like a history of Israel from the exodus all the way to the exile when they were uh, kicked out of the land and they ended up in captivity in Babylon. And so from that period of time, the historical books, and um, in that course of time, a big emphasis is on the land. Uh, 69 times in Deuteronomy alone, uh, Israel is said that they were going to possess the land. Uh, of Canaan, of the people of Canaan. And so the land is a, a big focus in that whole period of time. And the land is still an issue today, right? I mean, we're still fighting over the land of Israel today. If you think about it, um, it's in your news all the time. Um, it's the place that God chooses for his name to dwell. And it's associated, associated with the land is the promise of rest or peace um, that God makes. And uh, I think it's still true today. Um, the opposite of anxiety or fear or depression, right, is peace and joy. And God uh, says part of this blessing that I'm going to give to my people is this sense of peace, this sense of joy, uh, this promise of a measure of peace now and eternal peace uh, in the future in a place called heaven uh, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no sickness, no crying, and so on. And so, in the nation of Israel, there was a measure of peace uh, in the immediate, but ultimate real peace is yet to come and yet in the future. And so, in the book of Joshua, as we kind of go through these books, in the book of Joshua, um, the people are taking the land, right? And they're moving in and they're getting set up and and so forth. And then after that comes the book of Judges. And um, in the book of Judges, uh, people have, you know, sort of moved into the land, uh, but in in the very uh, beginning of the book of Judges, and we'll have it up on the screen for you, in Judges uh, chapter 2 and verse um, 7, here's what we read. Uh, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So there's a whole generation of people who see the Exodus. They live through it. They start telling their kids. They start telling their grandkids who are coming after them and so forth. There's a generation of people who serve God because they were part of this great work that God had done for Israel. Okay, uh, verse 11. Uh, but uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other small g gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So in the book of Judges, you know, we, we get this cycle that just starts and just keeps going all the way through the book. Um, uh, people basically are doing their own thing. Uh, and the next generations you know, kind of moved away from that original generation that left Egypt and had all that memory and so forth. Uh, by the time you get to Judges chapter 17, um, verse 6, uh, here's what we read. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? Everybody just did their own thing. 
Uh, so uh, there's a lot of unhappiness, right, in, in the book of uh, Samuel and Kings and this history, then the book of Judges, uh, where people are doing their own thing. Um, somebody said one time, and I think it's so true, that um, unhappiness in people's lives comes primarily from listening to themselves instead of talking to themselves. Isn't that great? Unhappiness in people's lives comes primarily from people listening to themselves instead of talking to themselves. Let's think about that for a minute. If you're a believer and if you're connected to the promises of God, there's lots of opportunity to talk to yourself. You're going to talk to yourself about what God thinks is important, what God values, and so on and so forth. If you don't, um, well, you're just pretty much listening to yourself. And in the book of Judges, that's basically what happened. We'll forget about God. Uh, we've moved into the land. There's other people around. They've got other ideas about what to worship and what to bow down to and so forth. And we're kind of wanting to be like them. And so we forget about God. We don't talk to ourselves. We just listen to ourselves. I want to be like everybody else. And so people moved away from God. And um, all through the book of Judges, God raises up these leaders, these sort of charismatic leaders who are called judges, and, uh, and they get involved in this cycle on God's behalf. They influence people to come back to God. Uh, and the cycle just keeps repeating itself. People forget about God. Uh, God disciplines them in some way or another. They're unhappy. Uh, they repent. God has compassion, gives grace, forgives them. Uh, he delivers them out of some mess that they're in and so forth. Uh, and, and then some judge rises up, moves them back towards God. They experience a measure of peace and, and so forth. Um, but um, it's a cycle. It just keeps repeating itself. Now, maybe you look at your own personal life and you say, you know, that's a cycle that happens in my life, right? I can easily forget about God. I can easily put him on the back. I can easily get distracted. I can easily want to get involved in other things and, and not make him prominent and so forth. But way back in Deuteronomy, um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter um, 17, uh, God had said that in the future, you're going to have a king. You're going to want a king, and, and you're going to have a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you're going to say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Part of the plan of God was to give the people a king, Right? Uh, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother, only he must... Look at this. Wouldn't this be great instruction for the kings of the earth today? Okay? Your king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Uh, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold, and so on and so forth, right? God is saying, look, someday you're going to want a king, and you're going to have a king, but the king is going to be my choice, and it's going to be in my time. And so you have this period of the judges, you know, going on, where the cycle just keeps repeating itself, and uh, eventually the people are wanting to have uh, their own king. And so um, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, here's, here's the people kind of rising up and saying, uh, kind of the, the crescendo of people wanting to be like everybody else is, we want to have a king, all right? It's not enough to have God be our king. 
It's not enough to have God be our leader. It's not enough uh, to live in a theocracy, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, verse 4. Uh, all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel, who was a prophet of God. And uh, they said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons are jerks. Right? We, we, you know, um, in antiquity, uh, a lot of times the uh, sons would inherit the father's role. And so, you know, you had sons of prophets, sons of kings, you know, taking the, when the father died, the son would step in and so forth. And you still have that in some of the um, Eastern nations. But he had crummy sons, Samuel, and um, they don't walk in God's ways. So appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So here's the people kind of, you know, wanting to be like everybody else. Uh, But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they're rejecting me from being king over them. They don't want to live in a theocracy. They don't want God to be first in their lives. And they're not rejecting you, Samuel. Don't take this personally. They're rejecting me. You know, it's important for us to understand that, you know, what's, what's happening, because this happens to us as well. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. And then Samuel gives this it's kind of a great passage to read uh, the warnings about what happens when you have a king and, and so forth. But verse 19 says, um, the, you know, Samuel says, let's not do this, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And uh, when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice and uh, uh, make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And then the people choose Saul. And Saul starts out pretty good, but he ends up being a disaster. Um, as if you're familiar with the story, uh, you know. Uh, but God uh, chose David. And so in 1 Samuel 16, um, the Lord comes back to Samuel and, um, and says to him, look, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Samuel was really s- upset that, you know, they appointed Saul and Saul bombed out and Samuel felt responsible. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him uh, from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse in Bethlehem, uh, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. You know, and the Lord said, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come here to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you what you shall do. Just listen to me and go, and I'll show you once you get there what you should do and what you should say and so forth. That's what faith is, right? And so verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, look, uh, he's looking at all the uh, kids of uh, Jesse, and um, the Lord says to Samuel, don't look on their appearance or on their height or stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord is looking at the heart. And so all the sons, you know, uh, come parading for him and and so forth. And eventually, um, God identifies David. And David, of course, um, eventually becomes king over Israel, Israel's greatest king. 
Uh, but something very, very significant happens here. It's really kind of cool. Uh, David becomes king, and he is God's choice. But the promise that went from God to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the nation of Israel is now entrusted to Israel's king, David. And this great promise that the whole foundation, that the theme of the whole Bible is based on, um, goes to King David, it's entrusted to King David and his descendants. So David is anointed by God, and uh, ten times uh, he's called God's anointed. God's anointed, right? He's anointed by God's spirit, by God's presence. And uh, this term, anointed, eventually, of course, is applied to David's greatest son, Jesus, who becomes the anointed one of God, uh, God's ultimate king in the line of David. We sang this morning, you know, about our king, anointed. The word uh, in the Greek is Christos, from which in the English we get Christ, uh, anointed. He's the anointed one. And so here's way back in the Old Testament, God is prefiguring what's going to happen in Christ on our behalf in the life of this young man, David, who was just a shepherd, you know, who God calls from uh, being a shepherd, this ultimate king in whom all the promises of God are going to become yes, right? First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 120. Uh, all the promises of God are locked up in him, the ultimate king who will rule over God's kingdom over all the earth. Psalm 2, if we had time, if you go there, it talks about God installing his anointed one over all the nations. And uh, again, it's a prophetic psalm about what's going to happen in the future. And so, so David is king. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, after David becomes king, you know, he builds himself a palace and so forth. And one, one day he's home in his palace and uh, he's having lunch with his friend Nathan. Nathan is a prophet of God. And, uh, you know, they're having lunch together, and they're just talking. And, um, and um, all of a sudden, uh, David says, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Just kind of thinking about the way life is. And David had fought a bunch of enemies, and God had blessed him, and, and there was a little bit of uh, peace happening. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, when the king... Uh, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, uh, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, the presence of God, the ark of God, dwells in a tent. What's wrong with this picture? David's starting to think, I've got this beautiful house, but God, the, the symbol of the presence of God, the ark of the covenant, you know, um, is there in a tent. And so Nathan, his friend, says, well, you know, do whatever's in your heart to do. What are you really saying? And uh, but, verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Right? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? In other words, God's like, did I ask you to build me a house? You know? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture 
from being a shepherd, from following sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you, and here it is, a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint you a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. There's the promise to Abraham. I'll give you a place. I'll give you a great name. I'll give you a future. I'll give you, you know. And here's the promise way back from Abraham being passed on uh, to King David. And uh, it's kind of exciting when you realize what's really happening here. God's ultimate king, Jesus, comes from the line of David. And so uh, when we get to this, uh, this, this is the promise being passed on to David. But listen to this. It's expanded. The last part of verse 11 says this. Moreover, the, la- the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is kind of cool. Right? Because basically David is sitting around. He's thinking, I've got to make a house for God. And God's like, no, I'm going to make a house out of you. Now, he's not talking about a physical house. He's talking about a dynasty. He says, I'm going to make of your descendants, your family, a dynasty. And then he goes even further. He says, it's going to be a dynasty that's going to last forever. Forever. You know, a dynasty is this succession of kings over this kingdom. And, of course, it's fulfilled in the person of Christ, a direct descendant of David. And it's so important, you know, um, way back here, we see, you know, God working this out. I'm going to establish your house. It starts out with David wanting to build a house for God, but it ends up with God saying, no, I'm going to build you a house. And God is going to make David's family into this dynasty, right, this succession of kings. But something even bigger is happening here. Look at the next couple of verses, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, in other words, when you die, when you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring, your seed, after you, who shall come from your own body, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. Um, Now, I think these verses are talking about Jesus and Solomon at the same time. They're like alternate. He's talking about Jesus, right? He's going to have this uh, great kingdom. Now, then he talks about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. You know that Solomon built the temple, right? Um, David's son Solomon, who, by the way, was, uh, came to him through Bathsheba and uh, all of that. And so um, he says, I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to establish my throne of his kingdom forever. He's going to build a house for my name. I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus, his kingdom is going to last forever, right? I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Solomon's not just going to be your son, David, but he's going to be God's son. And again, it's a prefigurement of Christ that he's laying out here, right? Uh, When he commits iniquity, Solomon, which he did, right? I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will never depart from him. Wow, sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? You know, when you uh, become a child of God and you mess up, God's going to spank you. God's going to, you know, discipline you. He's going to do what he can to get you to turn around and stop it and repent and surrender and submit and so on and so forth. But his love will never depart. You cannot disappoint him once you become one of his kids, right? And uh, it's just like the gospel. I'll, I'll, I'll punish him with the rod of men. Other people come against you, stripes of the sons of men. But my love will not depart from you like I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And listen to this, verse 16. 
your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. You know what the Hebrew word is there? It's forever. Right? It just means forever. Now, if you understand this, um, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So God tells David, You're gonna have, I'm going to establish your house. It's going to last forever in the line of David. Now, this is about, um, I think uh, Samuel is about 1,100 years before Jesus is born. Let's say 1,000 years before Jesus uh, comes into the world, right? A thousand years, God is talking about establishing David's house. When we get all the way fast forward to the New Testament, we go to the very first verse in the brand new New Testament, and here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first thing the Bible's going to do is establish the identity, right, of who this Jesus really is. And uh, if you go all the way down to verse 17 there, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. God's in control. God made a promise to bless his people. He's going to do it. He's going to do it through Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby people might be saved. There just isn't. And uh, way back here. And so watch this. David then responds, right? Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I don't deserve all of this. I'm just a shepherd. I'm the runt of the litter. I'm the youngest of my father. You know, da 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 And then he says in verse 19, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for all mankind. I never saw that before. This is the charter for the rest of the human race. This is the guarantee. This is the contract. This is the, you know, this, David realized that God was giving him something very, very significant, the promise of a future. That included us. That includes our eternity. And it's like David can't contain himself, and he sort of blurts out, I, I think this is more significant if God had revealed to you the cure for cancer. And you got all excited about it. This is more significant than that because it's forever. And it's going to come through David. And David felt immensely privileged, you know, to be a part of this line, this ultimate king that's going to come in the line of David and um, is going to be forever this instruction for mankind, this law, this teaching for mankind, direction for mankind, forever. And so look at how the Bible is so carefully pointing people to Christ. It's a thousand years before Jesus is born. And the very first verse is all about tracing his genealogy all the way back to David, back to Abraham. This God is orchestrating this promise through all of history. And you can count on them for the future. And when you do, it'll make a difference in your whole emotional and intellectual makeup because you'll be able to relax and so forth. There is a kingdom that will never end. And David just sort of blurts this out, right? Um, he can't help himself. And so, again, I would say that confidence in the future and belief in God's promise has the potential to offset 
despondency and discouragement, depression and anxiety and fears about the future and, and all of that stuff when we know that God has so carefully orchestrated this. And I know our emotions are a mixture of genetics and heredity and uh, family experiences and so on and so forth, but belief is an antidote uh, to the effect of all of those things that supersedes, the supernatural, the presence of God, the spirit of God in our lives, enabling us to have a measure, you know, of um, uh, more of the blessing, the life that God wants us to have. So much of our unhappiness comes from listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves about who we are in the person of Christ. Right? Try it sometime. You get up in the morning and you feel like whatever and you start listening to yourself and you start acting on the basis of what you're telling yourself. Start talking to yourself. Wait a minute. I'm a child of the living God. I'm in the line of the blessings of God. I have a God who loves me with an unconditional love, who sacrificed his son for me, who carefully orchestrated for my benefit and put it in the Bible so that I could read it and see it and understand it. From Genesis all the way through to my life today, I can have confidence that this God is taught. I can put my faith in the promises that he's made, and I can reap the benefits of the blessing that he intends for my life. There are many... Uh, passages that uh, you know kind of take this theme if you want to study a little on your own psalm 89 is kind of a commentary on all of this Uh, psalm 73 says you know my flesh and my heart may fail me right my body might break down my emotions might break down my flesh and my heart may fail me but god is the strength or the rock of my life and um, my portion forever Uh, i can take him at his promises psalm Uh, 73, uh, again, same thing about uh, just how this stuff works out. Now, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord restores my soul, which includes my emotional and intellectual life, right? My decision-making processes. The Lord restores our souls. Lots of unhappiness comes from listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves with the Lord's words back to ourselves. What a difference it makes. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I just love this where David says that this revelation to him about how you're going to deal with all of mankind is is such a great declaration for us and how it gives us confidence to think a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Here you are securing for us this promise and how it's passed on and why David is so significant and why you chose him to uh, be the recipient of this promise and how through him, uh, through his line, you were careful to bring Jesus into the world and how, we, how it instills confidence in us to be able to trust you and to put our faith in your promises and to see your hand over the course of history thousands of years now. We thank you, Father, for recording it in your word for us and I pray you'd help us to reap the benefits of it for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen.